A Canadian war hero is dragged through the mud by our government. Our tax dollars are now being used to pay for government hygiene products. Israel is defending itself. And we start a new series comparing Islam and Christianity. Welcome back. Glad you're here again. We normally hit three stories a week and talk about the history that led up to those stories. And since we are in Ramadan right now, I'm going to be adding a segment to the end of each podcast during Ramadan comparing Islam and Christianity. So listen all the way to the end because you're going to want to hear that part. Also, I do have a series on Islam versus Christianity on my website, lauraleesiemens.com and also on YouTube. So please check that out. And don't forget that we have a store now. So if you can go to the store, there's all kinds of great stuff that you can check out, books that I recommend, and uh, definitely go over there and check out our store. All right, so let's jump into this week and some history behind the news of this week. Mark was born in 1964. After attending Queen's University, he joined the Naval Reserve in 1980. After five years, he was transferred to the regular force and given the sub-lieutenant position. Mark was well-liked by others and respected, and he continued to rise in the ranks and was given the position of the commanding officer of the HMCS St. John's. In 2005, Mark became the Assistant Chief of Transformation, and two years later, he was appointed as the Director of General Strategy and the Chief Force Development of the Canadian fleet that was serving the Atlantic. In 2010, Mark was appointed as the Director of the General Maritime Force Development. He was also the Assistant Chief of the Naval Staff and the Royal Canadian Navy. In June of 2011, Mark was appointed as the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy and then, in 2013, the chief of the naval staff. In January 2016, he was appointed as the vice chief of the defense staff of the armed forces, making him the second highest ranking Canadian military official. Over the years, Mark has been awarded the Order of Military Merit, Special Service Medal, the Canadian Peacekeeping Service Medal, NATO Medal, Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Medal, and the Canadian Forces Declaration, and the Commander of the Legion of Merit. Look, Mark is a true Canadian hero, the kind of man we all want our boys to be. In 2015, Prime Minister Harper at the time, he approved a project to take a commercial ship and have it converted into a supply vessel for the Navy. So shipping companies began to bid on this job, and one of the bidders was a company called Irving Shipbuilding. Now, this is important to our story, so you need to remember that. Irving Shipping. So the Davy Shipbuilding Company ends up winning the bid for the job. And this is a much needed ship for the Navy. 
Then in 2015, the same year, Canada had an election and voted Justin Trudeau into office. One of the first things he wanted to do was gut our military. He decided to end the project of converting the commercial ship into a supply vessel for the Navy. The Davies Shipbuilding Company found out about this and the information was leaked to the press. Now, because the government had already legally confirmed that they would have the Davies Shipping Building Company do the project, legally they would have to pay a fine for dropping it and that fine would be $89 million. So one of the first things Trudeau did as PM was spend $89 million, our tax dollars, to not build a Navy ship. This also meant that our Navy would have no supply ship, not a single one. Only this got into the news and people were not really very happy about it. So the government decided to continue with the plan and not back out afterwards. But Trudeau is a very proud man who does not like to be embarrassed. And this was a very embarrassing way to start his new job. So he went on a hunt to find someone to punish. Trudeau told the RCMP to find out who was the person who had leaked the news to the press. In January of 2017, RCMPs raided Mark's home. He was accused of leaking information. Mark was then temporarily relieved of his post. The investigation continued and the cost of the lawyers and other court costs, plus losing his job, this was financially draining for Mark. Mark applied for funds from the Financial Assistant Special Government Fund. So this is a fund that helps with legal fees for government employees, but he was denied. So the financial cost had to be covered completely by him. The government refused to give his lawyers information about the case, and one witness actually said that the Canadian Forces General told him to leave Mark's name out of any documents. So if the lawyers asked for documents about Mark, they would have none to give them. Two times, Trudeau said in press conferences that he knew the case was going to end up in court. How did he even know that? Now, Mark's lawyers ended up uncovering uh, a man named Scott Bryson. So he's a cabinet minister in Trudeau's government, and he had family ties to the Irving family. That's right, the Irving Shipping Company that did not win the bid to have the boat converted. Then, in March 9th of 2018, Mark Norman was officially charged with one count of breach of trust by a public officer. He was then permanently removed from his post. The press wanted information on this. I mean, it's kind of a big deal. We're talking about a decorated veteran who is the second highest ranking soldier in our military. Trudeau said that it all happened under Harper, which, by the way, is a huge lie. And then he said it was Harper's fault that none of the documents could be released. But then Harper came forward and said, hey, release any document. I don't mind. But Trudeau still refused. In January of 2019, that's this year, Scott Bryson, the cabinet minister with ties to the Irving Shipping Company, suddenly decides to quit politics. He said, hey, it has nothing to do with that case. However, we're pretty sure it has everything to do with it. Then we learned that there's documentation of emails from Trudeau to other staff and memos by Trudeau about this case. There's also little things where Trudeau said that he knew for sure it was going to court, even though Mark had not even been arrested yet. By May of 2019, Mark Norman has had to pay $500,000 in legal fees. 
Then a man named Andrew Leslie, he's also a cabinet minister in the Trudeau government. He suddenly quit the Liberal Party and made it known that he was going to testify in Mark's defense. And he would be testifying against the Liberal Party. Now, Andrew, he was the star of the Liberal Party. He suddenly stepped down, left the party, and said he was testifying for Mark against the Liberals. Now the Liberals get really nervous. I mean, this is two Liberals gone over this case. Scott, because it looks like he was doing stuff to get his friends a big job, and Andrew, because he's sick of the corruption and is about to tell everyone. Either way, the case is turning quickly into a Liberal Party going on trial and not Mark going on trial. So at 10.15 Wednesday, May 5th, the charges against Mark were dropped. He was allowed to address the court. He simply stood, said thank you, and then sat down. In the meantime, Mark has been humiliated, lost his job, lost his military ranking, lost $500,000, and this is how Canada treats its heroes. Now, as a side note, in case you're wondering, the the ship in the middle of the story is now at sea supporting our Navy. So that's one of the stories this week that got me pretty upset. There is another story that happened this week that I don't know. Some people don't think it's a big deal, but for me, it's got me pretty angry. So we're talking socialism and tampons. Yes. So this week, our liberal government made the announcement that went pretty much unnoticed. I mean, even the conservative government seems to be agreeing with it, but I absolutely hate it. The government is now going to be giving tampons and pads to its employees. Now, I would say to its female employees, but it's 2019 and apparently men have periods now, so we'll just say employees. So just to be clear, the government is taking my money by force and using it to buy themselves pads and tampons. Now, if you question this at all, you are heartless. So I don't know why, with all the overspending and waste our government does, this particular story has me really mad. Maybe it's just the straw that broke this overtaxed camel's back. Maybe it's the fact that Trudeau thinks he can get back into the good graces of feminists by using our money to give tampons to government employees. Maybe I'm mad because it seems to be working and the feminists seem to be falling for it. Maybe it's the fact that the only party complaining about this is the People's Party. Even the conservatives don't seem to care. Maybe it's all of that, but I'm definitely not happy. Just a little reminder, foster kids don't get free tampons and pads. Foster parents pay for that themselves. But hey, let's pay for the tampons of the people with the cushy government jobs. Now, in 2015, when Harper was still our prime minister, he did something that actually was great and benefited all women, not just government employees. He made tampons, pads, diva cups, all of that tax-free. Now, that's a conservative argument, dropping the tax. But unfortunately, even conservative MPs have come forward saying that they agree with giving government employees free tampons and pads. Then, talking about how women can't afford to buy their own hygiene products. Really? You have a government job and you can't buy a box of pads for under $10? I mean, you can even get the cheap kind for like $3. Just stop. It's ridiculous. When Harper dropped the tax, it was right before the election. 
And the fact that most people don't even know that there's no longer a tax shows it really wasn't a huge burden on us. Even though I agree with dropping the tax, because I'll always agree with anything that involves the words dropping the tax, it's still a way to just get women's votes. Personally, I find it pathetic that either party thinks pads and tampons are the way to get women's votes. That's right, though. I had a few things to say about this on Twitter, and then I faced three days of constant mentions on Twitter. I was told I was heartless and a bad Christian because I don't want to pay for the government employees' pads and tampons. This escalated quickly to I don't embrace socialism entirely, then I'm a bad Christian which means we have to revisit a topic, Christianity and socialism. So first of all, the two teachings have one thing in common. The Bible and socialism are both against oppressing the poor. Proverbs 14.31 says, Those who exploit the powerless anger their maker, while those who are kind to the poor honor God. This is just one of many verses where the Bible tells us we are not to exploit the poor and we are instead to show kindness to them. The Bible says that true religion is this, helping widows and orphans in their distress. Now, that might sound pretty Marxist to you, but now let's talk about the difference. The Bible tells us to give freely with a cheerful heart. We give and God blesses us. Socialism takes everything we own and gives it to the government. And then the government decides who needs it and who doesn't need it. Everybody ends up oppressed under a heavy taxation. Okay, let me just give you a little story to explain the difference. Let's imagine you go to Tim Hortons and you get a coffee and it's roll up the rim season. You finish your coffee and then you roll up the rim. What? You didn't get your normal, please try again. You got a brand new car. Now, you already have a car. You actually just finished paying it off. So you have two cars now. That night, you're in bed, and you remember hearing about a single mom in town who's struggling. And you think, I have two cars. I could actually give one of my cars to help that mom. And the next day, you deliver a car to this woman. She's happy. You're even happier because you know you did something to help someone. This is what the Bible teaches. Now take that exact same story. But this time, the government says, wait, you have two cars? You're not allowed to own either of them. I'm going to take both cars away from you and then I'm going to look at your situation and if I think you need a car, I'll give you one of them. That is socialism. Under socialism, there is no private property. Well, what does the Bible teach about private property? Well, the eighth commandment is don't steal. But if that's not clear enough, the 10th commandment is even clearer. Don't covet your neighbor's house, wife, or possessions which is another huge reason you can't be a Christian and a socialist. The entire movement of socialism rests on the foundation, the need for people to covet the house and the possession of the upper class. You see, socialism versus Christianity is really coveting versus contentment. But you might be saying, what about the early church? Didn't they give everything they had and live together as a community? Yes, the early church did live that way, but they were not commanded to live that way. However, the church was commanded to care for the widows and orphans in the church, but even then there were guidelines. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says that anyone who is not willing to work would not be allowed to eat. 
1 Timothy 5.10 states that widows who had the church help them needed to have a reputation of good works. The church was only supposed to help also if there was no family to help. 1 Timothy 5.8 told families if they didn't care for members of their family, they had denied their faith and were actually worse than people who had no faith. Families is actually another reason socialism doesn't work with Christianity. Frederick Ingalls, who was one of the founders of the socialist movement, said he wanted a society where the family was not the economic unit. He wanted the care and the education of the children to be done by the public and not by the family. Christianity, on the other hand, is built around the family unit. The last reason I know socialism is not from God is that it doesn't work. If you do things God's way, it will be successful. Socialism has never been successful. The only place where it's mildly successful is where capitalism is still keeping the country afloat. However, any country that fully embraces socialism ends with oppression and the starvation of its citizens. The truth is you can't be a Christian and a socialist. And by the way, the socialists get this. That's why the first ones murdered under socialism are usually the Christians. That's why the Bible is banned in socialist and communist countries. So why then, according to recent Barna poll, do 24% of people believe Jesus would support socialism? And why do only 14% believe Jesus would support capitalism? Why are 60% unsure? I'm going to guess it's probably because they haven't read the Bible. So basically to sum it up, yes, you can be a Christian and at the exact same time hate socialism. Yes, you can be a Christian and at the exact same time think the government employees should buy their own pads and tampons. Okay, for the next story that really made me angry this weekend... Israel. So last weekend, Israel was hit with more than 600 rockets. And you definitely need to know the history behind this story. So 14 years ago, Israel gave away the Gaza Strip in hopes that it would bring peace for the Jewish people. Jews forcibly removed other Jews from their homes. They evacuated every single Jew from Gaza. They left homes. They left large greenhouses that were operational and already growing food. So what did the Palestinians do? They burned the homes and the greenhouses to the ground. Then they voted Hamas into power and used that area to set up forces to attack Israel. 14 years later, they're still using that area to attack Israel. Hamas actually has in its charter the call for the death of every Jew, not just those living in Israel, the call for the death of every Jew worldwide. They're constantly attacking Israel. For the past year, they've been burning tires on the border, flying kites with mini bombs over the border to burn Israel. They've been targeting Israel's soldiers who are trying to defend the border. So last week, the soldiers killed two men who were attacking the border. So in retaliation, over 600 rockets were fired into Israel. One million people spent the weekend and the beginning of this week living underground. A 50-year-old non-Jewish man was killed. 21-year-old father of two was killed. A 58-year-old man was killed when his van was hit. A kindergarten class for special needs kids was hit. Thankfully, none of them were in school at the time. 
Houses were destroyed. An ambulance was hit. A pregnant mother and her toddler were killed in Gaza because one of the rockets who were firing didn't make it into Israel. So they end up killing their own people. They then paraded the bodies around saying Israel had killed them. The media, of course, fell for it. Even though Israel had proof, the women and her children were killed by Gaza rockets, not Israel rockets. Now, Israel, in retaliation, hit the car of a man who was working to get money from Iran to Hamas. He was funding terrorists. The IDF tweeted a picture of his blown up car with the caption, if you're funding terrorists, you're not a banker, you're a terrorist. Israel had a hard time in fighting back, mostly because Hamas always sets up its headquarters in hospitals, schools, and mosques. And the attack this time was the same. So how did the left respond? Basically silence or calling for Israel to stop defending itself because the left hates Jews. They're only upset if Jews are killed by white supremacists, but they have no problem with Jews being killed by brown Muslims. Look, a normal rational person hates when Jews are killed by anyone, but then again, the left are not rational. Islam calls for the death of Jews. It's part of their religion. The Quran actually says that Muslims will kill all the Jews and the Jews are going to hide behind rocks and trees and the rocks and the trees are going to call out, hey, hey, there's a Jew hiding behind me. Come kill it. Yeah, that's in the Quran. So I thought we'd do a little talk comparing the Quran and the Bible. And since it's Ramadan, I'm going to be comparing Islam and Christianity each week through this month. You can check out the videos on my website for more Islam versus Christianity videos. Please go to lauraleesiemens.com or my YouTube channel and check out the series Islam versus Christianity. So today we're doing Islam versus Christianity Holy Books edition. We're going to look at a few different things. First, let's compare the basic makeup. So the Quran has 114 chapters, um, 6,236 verses. The Bible has 66 books. 1,189 chapters and 31,102 verses. Now the Quran has no known order and we're gonna get into that later. The Bible is divided into two sections, Old and New Testament. These two sections are divided into law, history, poetry, prophets, gospels, and letters. The Quran tells very random stories that don't even really connect. The early chapters revealed in Mecca are ethical and spiritual teachings and the day of judgment. The later chapters are concerned with social legislation and the political moral principles of the community. The Bible tells one story of redemption. So here we go. God creates the world, man decides to follow Satan, and then sin enters into the world. God promises a rescuer that will come one day. Man becomes insanely wicked, so God destroys the world with a flood, leaving one man and his family to start over. They also are corrupt, and the grandson of Noah builds a tower of Babel as a way to worship other gods and protect himself against another worldwide flood. God then separates people by creating languages, and he calls one man to leave his home and travel to a new land where he will establish a new country and will one day use those people to rescue the world. Abraham follows God, but even Abraham tries to do things his own way. He's old and his wife is old and they have no kids. So Abraham has a child with a servant and Ishmael is born. 
but God gives him a child with his wife Sarah, and Isaac is born. The blessing is passed on to Isaac, who has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is the youngest, but the blessing is passed on to him. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Jacob. Jacob changes Jacob's name to Israel, and they then become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of Jacob's sons is sold as a slave by his brothers to Egypt. Joseph then moves to Egypt and ends up in prison, but then he's rescued from prison and becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. He's then able to save his family from famine and they move to Egypt. But 400 years later, they end up as slaves in Egypt. Moses is born and survives the massacre of baby boys when he's rescued by an Egyptian princess. He then grows up to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and back to the land God promised him. He dies before they enter the land and Joshua leads them into the land. Joshua is a great leader and he divides and conquers the north and the south. God then appoints judges to lead the Israelites. There's judges like Deborah, Samson, and Gideon. When the Israelites follow God and worship him, he blesses them. And when they turn from him and worship idols, he takes his hand of blessings off and they are captured by nations around them. The people begin to do what's right in their own eyes, except for a few people like Ruth and Samuel. The people ask for a king, and God gives them Saul, who has no heart for God. The next king is David, who has a heart for God, and God blesses the land, and the people become a powerful nation. Solomon is the next king and the wisest king, and he builds a temple for God, but he also builds temples for other gods. After Solomon, the kingdoms are divided and end up in war. The north becomes Israel and the south becomes Judah. The north has 19 kings and the south ends up with 20 kings. Israel has no godly kings and the land of Judah has only eight godly kings. God sends prophets to tell the people, stop following these false gods or you're going to be sent out of your land and they don't listen. God sends Syria into Israel and they are scattered. They don't return to the land until the 1940s. Now that part's not in the Bible, but that's just history. Judah is taken captive to Babylon for 70 years. After 70 years, they are allowed to return. So Rebel rebuilds the temple, Nehemiah builds the wall, and back in Babylon, Esther becomes a Jewish queen and saves the lives of the remaining Jewish people. Then there's 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament, and then Jesus comes. He is the rescuer. He shows his power to forgive sins and healing people. He shows he has the power over death by bringing people back from the dead. He shows he's the creator by having power over creation. He then dies a horrible death, but three days later, he comes back to life. He says he's going to return soon, but before then, he speaks his message of forgiveness to the world. The church is started, and the letters to the church become most of the New Testament. The Bible ends with the prophecy of how Jesus will return and what that will look like. That's the Bible. The Quran cannot be understood without the outline I just gave you from the Bible. The Quran has random stories. And that sound like mostly they're just common stories from the Bible. The Bible, however, can stand alone and does stand alone as one book. Okay, the next thing we're going to look at is the claims. The Quran claims to be eternal. The claim is that there are these eternal tablets in heaven that have always existed. And those eternal tablets um, were spoken to Gabriel, who then came down and spoke them to Muhammad. So they say that the Quran has always existed, never was created. The Bible claims Jesus is the eternal word of God, that the Bible is not eternal. 
The Quran claims to be the direct words of God. Muhammad would actually go into a trance or have the vision and then would write down the words. He actually wouldn't write down the words because he never learned how to read or write. He would say them to people who would write them down. Allah gave the words to Gabriel, who gave the words to Muhammad, who then told his followers. Once again, told them is an important part of that. We'll get back to that later. The Bible claims to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the writings and the process of us getting the Bible. But what do we mean by inspired? Think about it like an instrument. So God picked human beings and then used them to write the Bible. So each part sounds different. We have different ways of writing because of the human was the instrument that God used. Think about it this way. If a musician picked up a flute and played it, and then picked up a clarinet and played it, and then picked up a trumpet and played it, they would all sound different, but the same musician played each instrument. The Holy Spirit breathed into people what to write, but each writer sounds different because their own personality and culture comes through in the writing. Okay, so now let's look at the history of the books. The Quran was spoken and memorized or written down in the year 610 to 632. The Bible was a 1,500 year long project. The first book was written in 1400 BC and the last book was written in 90 AD. The Quran, the author was Muhammad. Of course, like we talked about the claims, they say it was eternal. Then Allah gave it to Gabriel who gave it to Muhammad, but the author was Muhammad. The Bible had over 40 authors. The Quran, Muhammad never learned to read or write. He spoke the words and then they were written down or memorized by his friends. After he died, they decided to put all of it into a book, but they had to find all the pieces. So some were on stones, some were on leaves, other parts had been memorized by different people. Then there was this huge battle where most of the men who had memorized it died. So they put together the book and they had to keep, um, so they put together the part of the book that they had and then they kept it under the bed of the favorite wife of Muhammad. But then a goat ate part of it. So the part the goat ate happened to be the part where Islam teaches you to stone women. The wife said for sure she knew that it was in there before the goat ate it. So they ended up rewriting it and putting it back in. 20 years later, it was edited. This was because parts of it were missing, had been eaten by that goat or were lost. There's a few different people putting new additions together and they ended up fighting and arguing with each other. So then we ended up with different um, versions of the Quran. Then in the 1500s, the Ottoman Empire picked a version that they wanted to use and they burned all the other versions. However, across the world, there were still different versions. In 1924, one version was picked in Egypt out of the 14 different ones that were being used. The other versions were supposed to be destroyed by throwing them in the river. They threw most of them in the river, but they didn't get all of them. Then in 1985, so I was seven years old, the Quran that we see today and the one used everywhere except in some parts of Africa, that was accepted by Saudi Arabia and then eventually by the world. Okay, so that's the history of the Quran. Now the Bible. The Old Testament was written between 1400 and 400 BC. During that time, uh, a group ended up hiding copies of the Bible in a cave. We'll get back to that later. Then in 250 to 200, the Septuagint was written. So this was a Greek translation of the Old Testament book. And this was done because most of the Jews at the time were writing and reading in Greek. Then from AD 45 to 90, 
the New Testament was written. And then there was two councils, one in 90 and one in one in the year 118 that affirmed the Old Testament books as the Bible. From the year 303 to 306, there's this guy named Diocletian. He tried to kill all the Christians and then burn all the Bibles. Now, while many were burned, he did not get them all. By 310, the Greek New Testament had been produced. In 367, this guy made a list of all the New Testament books. And the next year, a council met in Carthage to confirm this list of books. No books were added or taken away since the year 367. In 400, the Latin translation was produced, and in 650, the verse structure was added to the Bible, which was being produced. Now, this is about the time period that the Quran was being produced, around the same time that the verse structure was being added to the Bible. Okay, in 735, the first bits of English translations were made, just the Gospels. Then all the way up until 1380 to 1382, when John Wycliffe Association made the first full translation of the Bible into English. In 1455, the Gutenberg Latin Bible, the very first Bible ever printed from a press. Actually, the first book printed from a press. In 1525, William Tinsdale made the first translation of the New Testament. Then in 1947, a little boy was looking for his lost sheep and he threw a rock and he ended up finding a cave. And in that cave, they found copies of the Old Testament. They were carefully checked and discovered that what we have today is the same as the six, is the same as 916 AD versions. So just to be clear, what we have today through all of those translations and manuscripts ends up being the same as what they were reading in 916 AD. So let's compare copies that are available today. First of all, we need to understand a few things. An autograph is the original copy. We have zero of Qurans or um, Bibles for this, but it was a long time ago. A manuscript is an original copy, letter by letter, exactly the same. Translations are taking the original and putting it into another language. We are looking now at how many manuscripts exist today, meaning copies from early centuries. First, let's look at the difference in how manuscripts were made. The Quran, they were written on leaves, stones, or simply memorized. And when Muhammad died, no one knew where they were or, and they had to go and hunt them down. They hadn't been kept in any specific place. The Bible had some pretty specific rules. It was only allowed to be written on clean animal skin. Strings used to bind them had to be produced with clean animal skins. Columns had to be completely equal. The length of the column had to be no longer than 60 lines. They had to use black ink. No word or letter could be copied by memory. You had to look at each letter and then copy down that exact one. You could not copy by memory. You had to say the word out loud while you copied it. And each copy had to be reviewed within 30 days of the copy. And there's actually a ton more rules. All right, so what is still available today? Well, the Quran, we have six original manuscripts. In the Bible, we have 24,970. So just as a side note, some other important manuscripts that we have that are used today. Homer has 643. Plato has seven, Caesar has 10, and Tacticus has 20. Now these are all, Homer, Plato, Caesar, and Tacticus are all books that historians look at as um, being reliable and books that we use for history. 
So the Quran has six, the Bible, 24,970. So the Quran, again, six. Now, they thought they found three more in 2002, but those turned out to be from before Muhammad was even alive. So they were not actually pieces of the Quran. The Bible, like I said, 24,970. Now, 265 of those are at least 100 years before Muhammad was even born. So let's compare that again. We have six manuscripts of the Quran. We have almost 25,000 manuscripts of the Bible. And of those, 265 are older than Muhammad. Here's a few extra points to consider. The Quran says in chapter 10, verse 94, but if you are in doubt as to what we have revealed to you, ask those who read the book before you. Certainly the truth has come to you from your Lord. There you should be, there you should not be of the disputers. So those who read the book before you, that is Christians. And the book mentioned there is the Bible. The Quran actually says a lot to say about the Bible. Here's another quote. We believe in what has been revealed to us, and we believe in what has been revealed to you. That is what Muslims are supposed to say to Christians. In chapter 33, verse 4, it says, He has revealed to you the book with truth, verifying that which is before it. He revealed the Torah and the Gospels aforetime. So you can see that even the Quran says Muslims should be reading the Bible. But the Muslims will say, yeah, but the Bible is corrupt. But the Bible was already finished and completed before the Quran, and we have almost 25,000 manuscripts that date back to, to the same time or before the Quran, and those manuscripts show that we do have the same Bible today. So some questions to ask. If the Quran is eternal and has always been on the tablets with God, why does the Quran have sections in it about how to have dinner with Muhammad? Why exactly was that necessary? Chapter 33, verse 53, there's this whole thing about don't visit Muhammad for dinner and don't come early and and when you you have to leave as soon as you're done. And it says that Muhammad's too shy to tell you this, but Allah wants you to know. Also, P.S. side note, don't marry his wives when he dies. This seems like a weird thing to have in an eternal book that exists before time. There's also the whole hijab thing. So Muhammad's friend Umar keeps telling him to cover his women, and his friend is kind of creepy, although the Quran says, by the way, that he's awesome. But anyway, one day Muhammad's wives are going to the bathroom, and this weird Umar guy sees them and says, hey, I recognize you. So the wife goes back to the tent and tells Muhammad, who then gets a revelation from Allah that women have to be covered at all time when they leave the house. Seems like kind of weird timing to me. I mean, an eternal tablet that just happens to have a verse about Muhammad covering up his wives right after his weird friend Umar watches them go to the bathroom. Also, why do women today still have to suffer under that? Just because this Umar guy was creepy and watched women go to the bathroom in the 6th century in an Arabian desert. So a few other things. The Quran talks about Samaritans in the Moses story. According to the Quran, the Samaritans are the ones who built the golden calf. But the Samaritans didn't exist for another 700 years after Moses. The Quran also says that Pharaoh used crucifixion, but the Romans invented this in 800 BC, hundreds of years after Pharaoh. Mary, the mother of Jesus, has the same parents and same brother as Miriam, the sister of Moses. Pharaoh, Babel, and Haman are all in the same story, even though these are characters from completely different stories that took place hundreds of years apart and in different parts of the world. Alexander the Great is in the Quran, and he builds this giant wall between two mountains. There's absolutely no record of this ever happening. 
There's a story of Solomon who gives, who has birds who talk to him and the birds go to Queen Sheba and tell her to go visit Solomon. This is a story that's actually from a children's book that was popular among the Jewish community at the time of Muhammad. It's just a funny, clearly made up story for children that no one thought was true. I'm going to end up doing a video on this topic this week and we're going to go into a little bit more detail. So subscribe to my YouTube channel so you don't miss it. I went through already the basic outline of what the Bible believes, but here is the overall theme. God created the world and of all of God's creation, people were the only ones he formed with his hands and breathed his own breath into. And then we turned our backs on him, but God in his love came to earth to rescue us. Jesus is God and he came to take the punishment for our sins. He allowed himself to be killed and placed in a tomb. And then three days later, he showed he was more powerful than even death when he rose again. And now he offers us freedom from sin, freedom from the power of sin in our lives today and freedom from the penalty of sin in the future. Now, by admitting first that you are a sinner, by believing Jesus is God and he alone can save you, and by calling out to him and asking him to save you, he will. He promises, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. For more podcasts, blogs, and videos, go to lauraleesiemens.com. 